welcome to Positive Talk with Kevin McDonald. Hey, that's me. Hi, and welcome to Positive Talk. Our show features the best positive stories and people from around the globe as we endeavor to answer the universal question of why am I here and what is my purpose? Understanding that can change everything and knowing your greatness is fundamental to living your best life. So join us right now as together we work to create the adventure of our lifetime. And welcome, everybody, to the adventure of my lifetime. I've got to tell you, it's going to be a lot of fun today. We've got a, a great author. Oh, boy, he's done so much. And let me let me go through his bio real quick just because he's an entrepreneur. He's an author. He's a speaker. And he's a retired Navy SEAL. First of all, it, well, his name is Marty Strong. And first of all, Marty, I'd like to thank you for your service. Oh, thanks. And thanks for having me, Kevin. Listen, this will be a great deal of fun because you are an author. You've written lots of books. You've got like, what, nine or so? Six, six, uh, 12. Um, now. You got now, 12. Yeah. yeah. Now you've got some, uh, um, um, novels and you've also got some business journals, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Which you like doing the most? Uh, I like writing the novels. Uh, the nine novels were, uh, they're very cathartic and you can kind of, because they're novels, you can kind of go with the flow and, and uh, anybody that's done fiction writing after a while, when you get comfortable, you realize the characters kind of take you places that you didn't plan. So uh, that's fun. You, you're not really sure where it's going to go. And, and uh, you know, you stay within the story arc and all that kind of stuff. And, but you're surprised and it's fun. But the business books are, somebody's going to read this and think I'm an idiot. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <clears throat> so you have that. You have that kind of going on and then like my first business book was really well received um everybody loved it and everything so then when i went to write the second one i said yeah but this one's gonna how, how can i ever follow up the first one you know with with one that's as good so yeah it's business books there's a lot more pressure on you because you're doing it professionally and laying out your philosophy and all that and if you were to do, well first of all i got i gotta say that you're not the first author that i've talked to that says you know i develop a character and I put the character in a room and then it just kind of goes and it just kind of flows and it meets another character. And then that character introduces you to another one. And it just kind of works like that. Is that, is, are you surprised at, during this process? Well, in the beginning, I, I made a conscious decision not to diagram and storyboard the hell out of the, out of the first book. And I did that because the uh, stream of consciousness writing is a lot more fun. It's more comfortable and it, it really allows your creativity to flow where planned and structured writing. It's, it's like, you might think it's like trying to put a building together. It's very, very linear. And, and so very not, you know, not very creative and you're second guessing and you're going back and looking at everything to make sure it's, a, it's going according to plan. So I decided consciously in the first novel I wrote to, to do the second path of, of creative stream of consciousness and you write the whole thing you don't really look back you don't edit it you wait until it's done essentially and then you go back and so, so the story gets out and the story is you know three act play you know you got a beginning middle and end and you you have main characters which you've thought about a little bit but the, the fun thing is it's kind of like a pinball machine the main character walks into a room and is looking for something and then bumps into a person in the room that lost their keys and you're like, where did that person? Why? Where, how did I come up with a person who lost their keys? Is the person they bump into to ask 
ask you know for guidance or for directions or whatever and and then your mind says well make this person really interesting you know like they they um they've got their their dog locked in the car and that's why they, it's so vital to get the keys and so now this person the main character gets sucked into trying to help this person get the dog out of the car you know it's 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 just a little side vignette but it also helps you make all the characters feel like real people because that's what really happens in life you bump into these weird situations and and life takes you where life's going to take you it's not always planned out well and that's and that's i would think that that is what draws people in because they appear to be real folks that just normal life is happening to and they end up in extraordinary situations yeah the key is to try to be right characters that people align with and are sympathetic to or empathize with and you know the old story is it you'd come up with a hero or a heroine and in the beginning of the book you you chase them up a tree and you spend the rest of the time in the book trying to get them out of the tree and the tree is the dilemma the tree is the challenge the problem the the crisis and if you don't create real characters with real you know strengths and, and flaws people can't get emotionally engaged and attracted and attached to those characters because you want them to care that they're up in the tree you want them to care exactly that, yeah right so like for example in that that example with the uh, the person that can't find their keys well what if the the main character has a timetable too and they're trying to get something done and now this is disrupting the timetable so now you're concerned about the person with the key and the dog but you're also concerned about the main character trying to get to a certain point for a vital meeting and if they blow that you know that there's all these other consequences so you've got you're like come on get the keys get the dog get out keep moving you know? <laughs> and if you've done that if you've got people thinking that way then you've done a good job in building the character well, i think i think that's awesome now before i'm assuming now well, i don't know this so i gotta guess i'll ask were you writing before you became a navy seal or was this did you start writing afterwards oh long after i was only 17 when i joined the navy and i think i was i was just turning 18 when i went through the seal selection training in coronado california so my my writing i always liked to write when i was a kid i did well in english classes and i enjoyed the process i always loved to read that always helps you when you're writing if you've read a lot of books and read a lot of good authors um you're comfortable putting putting your thoughts on paper because you know how thoughts are supposed to be structured you kind of know the feel of it and in the navy there's military technical writing so in the seal teams they're small units and so you do a lot of mission planning which is a lot of what if scenario work so you're storyboarding out all these missions and a mission might have five or six or seven different possible paths to success and you're swapping out different phases and steps in the storyboard so it's a very creative process and and then you're writing it down then you're changing it and you're adjusting it and the characters are the seals I mean, you're the character in the story you're building, and the story is your your plan, how you're going to go out and execute it. And then, then once you have all that, and you give everybody the briefing, and you rehearse it, and everybody goes, "This is going to be great," and you go out there, and the entire plan falls apart, and you make something up on the on the fly. <laughs> Ninety nine times out of a hundred, you make something up in the moment when you're there. It's, I have to, I have to tell you, my son joined the Air Force, and he wanted to become a, what's called a seer. Are you familiar with yep. that term? Yeah and uh basically what a seer is for those who don't know and please marty since you know and i'm just going on what he says i'll i'll defer to your expertise but a seer is someone that teaches pilots 
who get shot down behind enemy lines how to survive without getting captured and being able to eat and being able to make a tent out of a, a paper bag or whatever yep. whatever they have to do. Am I am I close? Exactly right. Survival, escape, evasion, and uh, I can't remember what the R stands for, but yeah, it's S-E-R-E. I, I had to go through it as a student a long time ago when I was a kid, so and that's it. it <laughs> He, he made it for three days. He, he was very proud of that, that because what they do, well, as you know, and I, this is what, again, what he relayed to me is you don't sleep much. You, you are out and about in the woods and you're, and you're hiking and you got a 50 pound pack and you're going and going and, and then you get to stop and then they have you do a, a test. Like in his case, he failed at making a tie, which was what he needed to do as part of the training. And so they, after like three days, and then he said his third day that he got to sleep a little bit, but he was on an anthill with a, a red anthill. So that didn't go over real well. And he said after three days, and apparently they can do this after three days, they said, you don't appear to be into this young man. So we're going to go ahead and flunk you and, and put you back into, into the ranks. Is that how, is that kind of how it works? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots. Every service has their own variation that of that same course, and they all run it a little bit differently. Um, Special operations has their own. The Air Force, Army, Marine Corps. Marine Corps tends to go to the Navy ones. Pilots all go to the Navy ones. SEALs all go to the Navy ones. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, you you didn't volunteer to go to it. Like you have to volunteer to become a special operator. So you have to volunteer right. to become a Green Beret, a SEAL, whatever, which means you can quit any minute. You can just say, Nah, I'm done. Obviously, they can drop they can drop you for lots of different reasons, medical reasons, uh, academic reasons. You you know, fail to pass exams and things like that. Physical standards, um, yeah. But that, you know, the I was an instructor twice at our SEAL selection course, and the um, you know, you're, you're, there's a fine line between putting challenges in front of these young guys and then you know watching them try to do it, or it turns into punishment, or they're clearly not capable of doing it for one reason or the other. And then stepping in and making sure they're okay, and then, you know, having having a chat with them whether they want to keep going on or not. You know, I've seen in the movies, like uh, Officer and a Gentleman, and some of the other ones, that there is this bell. Um, is there is that is that Hollywood, or is there actually a bell that if you're done, if you decide you're done, you can walk up and ring the bell? Well, the bell. I don't know if there's bells in other courses. I mean, officer gentleman was um, what's called AOCS, Aviation Officer Candidate School, for Marines and and uh, Naval officers that want to become pilots. So they go through a different, a different version, a little bit harsher version, run by Marines uh, to weed them out because they're going to be fighter pilots or they're going to be combat pilots, right? Yeah. Um, the SEAL community's had a bell around probably at least since the early '60s. And it may even date back to further before that, but when uh, the SEALs were created in 1962 and the, the basic selection course was created, which was pretty much a mirror image of a course that was set up in the um, mid to late part of World War II. A lot of the same elements that are in the current SEAL basic course are, were in that original course. And they, they thought all these things were, were based on combat experiences in North Africa, in Italy and other places that uh, they brought back to the course. So they were, they were tests. They were psychological tests, but basically psychological because you're getting physically 
fatigue to the point where you make a psychological choice. And the bell is a great symbol of that choice. It's a physical act. You have to, you can think about quitting all day long, but to physically stand up and walk over to where the bell is. And, and during hell week, which is five days of much hell. more, much more, <laughs> yeah, much more brutal treatment. Um, the bell's in the back of the truck on every, on every evolution of every day. It's mobile. It's moving with you. Uh, when hell week's not in session, it's hanging in front of the first phase office of, of buds. And I mean, we've had guys, you know, low crawl, rolling underneath parked vehicles and then sprinting to, to bring out so they wouldn't be talked back into the class because they knew once that bell's rung, that's the finality. You ring, you ring at one time, you're done. And nobody can take that back. And they're, and they're told this in the very beginning, you know, you're here as volunteers, you made a choice, but you can make a choice to leave too. But this is the deal. You have to do it. it it's supposed to be kind of a public acknowledgement that you've decided I'm not in this. It sends a message to everybody else that, that sees it happen. But just as often, people just sneak in and do it. <laughs> Which, you know, I've been, I, I was, I remember times I was in my office and I was in charge of the, of the first phase where Hell Week is and everything. And I'd be halfway into my, you know, first cup of coffee and almost spit it out because I'd hear the bell ring out there and I'm like, what the heck? You know, we all jump up and there's some guy standing there and he drops his, drops his helmet and says, I'm done. And you can't, you can't counsel him. You can't try to, talk them into you know you can't normally we do that you have all these different chat sessions that you know two or three people try to help the you know because they're young guys you know you try to help the kid out and unscrew their mind a little bit you don't give them any excuses you don't give them like the playbook on how to move forward you just say look you know think about the decision half the time they'll turn around and they'll leave but if they've rung the bell it's too late so it's all done finality yeah yeah. So you were a 17 year I'm curious as to your mindset. That 17 year old kid and you go into the military and you decided you wanted to become a um a a seal. Was that something that you had visions of when you were, you were even younger before you got in or was that something that they said, "Hey, we think that you'd be really good at this." And they talk you into it. So Ironically, I write all these books on planning and mindset and all these other things. And I had no plan and no mindset at 17 years old. I mean, I, who does? I, uh, it, I ended up at SEAL training because of a mistaken orders. I didn't actually decide to go there. I went to air traffic and radar uh, school in Great Lakes, Illinois, and uh, about 17 weeks. And I was supposed to go to a ship, a destroyer, a cruiser, I'm sorry, in the Mediterranean. And instead, I got orders to underwater demolition SEAL training Coronado. The next morning, they gave me the tickets. Get on a plane. You're flying to San Diego. I called my dad. My dad, you know, had me read the orders to him from O'Hare Airport. And he'd been in the Navy during the Korean War. And he said, well, son, they're, they're called orders for a reason. You have to go out there. But just find a chief petty officer. Tell him what the situation is. And they'll get it all worked out. And you'll be back, you know, where you're supposed to be. And so I did that. And instead of a chief, I ended up with a master chief. With five combat tours in Vietnam, the guy talked me into volunteering. Well, that's it. I don't. I, no master plan. No yearning to do it. No five thousand push-ups a year preparing for it. I just went okay. You know, 
and the rest, as they say, is yeah. history. Yeah. And again, I just want to say thank you for your service. And uh, it is remarkable what those guys do, and and we'll never know. Um, you know, I had, I had a gentleman that uh, I worked with at a, at a radio station, and he was a trainer for seals and for other folks and he had to laugh because he we were talking about being on an airplane and they don't allow um razor blades on an airplane or and and he said that's the silliest thing i've ever heard because the guys i train can kill you with a pencil yeah i don't really even need that <laughs> yeah <laughs> so so from that not, standpoint, not that you're walking around every, all the time thinking about that but yeah you, you have to be trained you're trained in everything. You're trained in, you know, your your warrior your warrior mindset is not that you're going to go out and try to kill somebody on purpose or that you're going to try to go out and kill somebody in a particular way, like with your hands. It's actually the opposite. You picture yourself in a fight, and if you're at a great distance, you, you learn and go to schools and stuff to learn how to call in naval gunfire, artillery, airstrikes. If you're... Um, seven, 800 yards out, you go to school and you're trained on how to shoot sniper rifles and long range machine guns. And you're trained on every single range right up until it's right here in your face and you don't have any weapons. And then you're trained how to, how to fight and, you know, defend yourself and defeat whatever the threat is at that, at that range. So you're, you're taught as a, it's a weapon system, starting with your body all the way out to, to putting, you know, metal on foreheads, using other people's skills and capabilities because that's that's the nature of the game you're going to get into seals are naturally they're, they're supposed to rely on stealth and they're supposed to rely on surprise and in vietnam it was considered kind of a mistake if you got into a firefight unless it was an ambush that you set up and it was overwhelmingly successful because you set it up if you just bumped into somebody and got into a shootout that was considered screwing up because you were supposed to be ninjas. You were supposed to slide into villages, you know, do what you need to do, slide back out. And um, they aren't into frontal assaults and all that stuff. So the mindset's a little bit differently. You, you prepare to fight well, but what you want to do is you want to come in and, and do a lot of good things and get out to fight another day because you're a pretty expensive asset. Well, you know, what you've been talking about, and I didn't really recognize it until you were talking about it because of the planning and the training and the more planning and all of the, and being nimble both mentally and physically and being able to to do those things and um the navy seal mindset is the same a little bit different but the same in the, on the battlefield as it is in business um explain what you because i read that right there on your website explain what you mean by that yeah, so the title of my first business book was Be Nimble, How, How the Navy SEAL Mind, Creative Navy SEAL Mindset Wins on the Battlefield and in Business. And that's, I was talk, talking about the storyboarding of mission planning. Um, we would bring everybody into the mix. Everybody had kind of an equal say because you never know when the outlier person is going to come up with the, the good idea. So it might be the most junior person in the room. It might be somebody that hasn't has no combat experience, but it doesn't really matter because there's a certain kind of experience that is useful, but there's also a certain kind of experience that's very harmful in business and in, in combat. And that is 
where you're pretty much in a rut with a football play, a formula, and you're winning and you're winning and you're winning. And what you don't know is you're about to lose big because you're, you're doing the same thing over and over again. And the bad guys or the universe has decided to change things up on you. And because you're not paying attention because you've got a system, you, you walk right into that next mess. So what you're supposed to do is kind of clear your mind of all that and look at everything with a blank slate, evaluate all the, all the threats and all the opportunities related to the mission, use everybody's brain cells, throw it up all on the wall, see what sticks, rehearse and practice and experiment to see if it's, if it's feasible. And then when you, usually because of time, you finally have to come up with a way to do things, you lock the plan down, and then you go out and execute. And when you execute, like I mentioned before, you get in there and the weather's wrong. The waves are a lot higher than you thought they were going to be. The uh, the friendly guy that was supposed to meet you on the beach isn't there. Um, they, they told you there was going to be two bad guys and said there's 40 bad guys and they've got dog patrols. Um, on and on and on and on. Everything, you know, the, the aircraft that drops you ends up dumping you in the mountains and instead of the valley. So now you've got nine hours in the dark to try to climb up and down mountains to get back down to the valley. So you're way behind schedule. Plus you have a whole bunch of risk. That's what really happens because they're special operators are used for unconventional scenarios and they have to come up with unconventional solutions because they're unconventional scenarios. If there were conventional scenarios, they'd use conventional forces. So if you look at the business side of it, all those lessons learned derived from that, in my case, 20 years, you go into business and you say, okay, so I have to do the same thing. I can't rest on my laurels. I also can't sit and mope and, and cry about the mistakes I've made because whatever I did, when I did, it was in the context of that moment based on the information I had. So now I'm smarter, maybe a little wiser, maybe I have a little scar tissue. So as I move forward, I have to start evaluating the universe, the marketplace, customers, even my employees based on reality in front of me, not what used to be the truth. And that goes the same with the education that you gained going to, to business school, what you learned in the last job. And that's what I mean that sometimes experience is actually the reason why people fail bigger because they think experience is something that builds up to the point where you can't make a mistake. And everybody's supposed to be listening to you because you had the most experience. What you have is you, you, you're basically a historical success, but that doesn't mean you're going to be successful tomorrow. That's amazing. And that's true. Uh, even in like sports, uh, a coach may have a particular style of, of play calling and how they, how they do it. But uh, they come up against a team that is doing something that they didn't expect. And then if you're not nimble, if you can't react and respond appropriately, then you get, you get beat. Uh, I don't know if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, but that just happened last weekend to them because, you know, and and that, but that's, that's interesting because that, that happens. So when you are now, first of all, you, you spent 20 years in the, in, in, uh, the seals. Is that right? Correct. Congratulations, by the way, I imagine that did you get an extra pension for being, for doing that? Well, I've got 80% disability if that counts as an extra pension. Oh, geez. Well, I, I, I'm so sorry that, uh, most, that... most ghost guys in the team, back to the football comparison, you know, when you're 17 and you do, you do, you pass all the physical tests at the beginning of the buds course, you, um, are in pretty good shape. I was an athlete in high school. 
And uh, by the end of six months, you are, you know, you're not an Olympic caliber athlete, but you're definitely NCAA level caliber athlete, running, swimming, um, any kind of physical fitness. And that's about the peak. <laughs> At that point, <laughs> you get stronger. You might get a little faster because you lift weights and things as you're, as you're going along. But you start getting dropped out of airplanes, sliding down ropes and slamming into hard objects. Um, and, and lots of other things, you know, I've got frostbite on like five or six digits. Uh, you know, my, my thumb got crushed. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And it just, it accumulates. So think of that, the NFL, you know, you're a brand new rookie. You've made it through college without getting destroyed. And every year the game is chipping something off of you. Yeah. It's taking a little piece of you. And that's why, just like with special operators, you get to about the 11th year. And you're experienced, right? And you you really highly skilled, and and the Navy's probably poured about two and a half to three million dollars into you in training. And so you're the two million dollar man or the three million dollar man, and you're half a step slower than you were last year. Now, you might ignore it or not not be aware of it, except that the guys that are in their first, second, and third year as SEALs are saying hi to you as they go <laughs> past you in the run. <laughs> so, or on the rope, on rope climb contests or how many push-ups you can do, or it, you name it. So you start to feel the wear and the terror and uh, th you don't even have to have a catastrophic injury. You can just, it's just, you know, the wear and tear ver vertebrae is getting all crushed up and losing, losing, um, uh, discs and, you know, knee injuries. And, and next thing you know, you look just like anybody in the NFL on year 11 or 12, you're just kind of limping along. You still know how to play the game up here. <laughs> you can still shoot. You can still do all those kinds of things. But now you look a little bit like the, uh, you know, the deputy sheriff. <laughs> you're just kind of, kind of walking on going, run whatever you say, sheriff. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of like the spirit is willing, yeah, but the flesh can't take it anymore. And everybody, everybody's very respectful. <laughs> sort of. That's that's that has to be when you are at the top of your game and you're fast and and you and you can do everything and then you get more experience and then and then these young bucks will come along who haven't been thrown out of an airplane as much and all that kind of stuff by the way what's it like what was it like the first time that they took you up in an airplane and said all right jump so i had to go through army jump school where you got five jumps and you spent the first two weeks basically learning how to fall down uh, at different heights. They have all these different mechanisms and, and training devices to include a, um, I think it's like a 90 foot tower that hauls you up and then lets you go. And there's a parachute above you. And then you basically float to the ground under a parachute. That's before you get into a plane. So they're very good at, you know, stepping you and training you into that. And I was uh, 17 and a half, maybe at the time. And, uh, when we got in the plane to finally jump, just a big long tube, and we had about forty or fifty people in this this uh, jump jump aircraft, and we were going to do a side door exit. So you basically hook up on a cable, and your 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 you know your face is like right up against the guy in front of you, and when they tell you to stand up and hook up, and then you buddy checks to make sure everybody's hooked up. There's this little safety wire thing you put in there so you're going through it because you've done it a million times so they've been prepping you for this right what they didn't prep me for 
was that when the side door opened, that at least a third of the men that were standing there started crying because <laughs> they were terrified. Sure. And I wasn't, I wasn't worried about it, but then I started hearing all these guys that were older than me, you know, some of them were sobbing, you know, shoulders are moving up and I'm like, Oh crap. Do I not understand what's about? <laughs> Am I missing something here? <laughs> but about the time I was thinking that it was, the green light comes on and it's go. And so each guy takes a step, turns and goes out the door and they're, and you're sucked out of that plane because of the forward speed of the aircraft. You got bodies just in front of you. And all of a sudden it's you light, boom, you're gone. And then, and then you're out there ah, and then you're underneath the canopy that opens up over your head. And um, you don't even think like, Oh God, thank God or anything like that. I was just still kind of getting, trying to get my hands around the crying thing when I went out the door. <laughs> <laughs> and um and and because they do lower altitude with that particular kind of training you only have a few seconds before you hit the ground and uh you can't really steer those old parachutes in those days so you, you basically do a little bit of a steerage to turn into the wind and about the time you go you know count to seven you're you're hitting the ground and then you're supposed to practice that thing that they've been telling you to do on how to fall and half the people forget because they're so wrapped up into the new experience that they just land like a bag of, you know, bag of donuts. Um, and that's jump one. Right. <laughs> so I, I walked away from that saying, OK, I didn't cry. So I guess I did OK. And uh, so then, we, you know, you do the five jumps. They give you the, the Army Airborne wings. And uh, and then I, I go to SEAL Team 2 and we're doing jumps out of airplanes into the ocean. Um similar situation except that you're getting out of your parachute and in combat the that the parachute sank while you swam to a boat the boat was also being parachuted out of the back of a cargo plane and uh so you have a boat comes out cargo cargo chute opens up the boat's going down the rest of you run out the back of the uh the cargo plane out of the tail ramp um so all your canopies open and you're floating down you get rid of the parachute you swim over to the boat you cut some lines, put the engine in the water, get a head count and take off towards the enemy beach. So we were doing that all the time, you know, probably 20, 20, 25 times a year easily. And that's just what's called static line. That's where you're actually attaching yourself to the plane. Then no, no. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, so, so the other kind of jumping is, is, is called free fall. Or it's the same thing as uh, skydiving. And in that case, you're just jumping out of the plane and you either are falling from a really high altitude for a long time before you open your chute that's called high altitude low opening or you're jumping out and within a few seconds you're opening up your canopy and that's called high high altitude high opening so it's hey low and hey ho and you um in the first one you just fall and it's you're cold and you wait you know you've got an altimeter it's telling you what the, alti um, the altitude is you pulled on the altitude, the whole team kind of finds itself on the ground. In Hey-Ho, you jump out as a team. Every person jumps out with a little bit different um, count. It, they pull their chutes on those counts. You all open up, and then you get it in a stack, and you fly in a formation across the ocean towards the enemy beach. And that, that takes a lot of time and effort. I had a little over 750 of those kinds of jumps. Wow. And it's, it, hence the reason why you have disability now is that well, yeah. the odds yeah. the odds of you doing it perfectly every time are pretty astronomical, I would think. 
yeah, it, 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 a lot of things that can happen, but, and, and, you know, the more experienced you get, the more practiced you get, you go one of two ways. You either get a little bit more slack and checking everything because you're, you're so experienced or you get more, more attentive <laughs> because you're so experienced, you know? And, and if you see some guys having trouble guys running into each other in, in the sky and breaking bones and stuff, cause you're moving at real high velocity. Um, I never had, I never had a problem with any of my parachutes and uh, I, th I probably had about a hundred or so static line and 750 uh, skydives, but I did mess up my back because coming down with a stack above me, getting ready to land uh, seven or eight guys above me. Um, I hit a wind shear. It was out in California in the desert and my parachute just went, looked like a hand went like this, like it was a napkin. Went, and they were videotaping us. And I got to see the videotape later, but you see this perfect stair step of big square canopies, beautiful coming in, they're powder blue. And then all of a sudden you see the one in the front go, and you see me detach from the formation. And then you see my arms going like this. And then you see this wily coyote. <laughs> but I only, I only dropped it. The windshield hit me at 60 feet. And I probably, it was probably the equivalent of dropping from about 40 feet. Uh, because I was going faster and faster and uh, messed my back up. But I did. I landed in the only sagebrush, you know, within 100 yards. I think that's what kept me from getting really, really hurt. Well, again, I, I got it. And now, are you going to write a book about your experiences in the SEALs, or are you not allowed to? I have more fun. Like, I have five novels that are, um, it's called the SEAL Strike series. I have a lot more fun writing about my experience in the context of a novel fiction. Ah, that makes because, sense. For a couple of reasons. I mean, I can put all kinds of things in there. Uh, my books have some things I experienced in combat. I just put them in different places. I just put them geographically there. And you'd have a really hard time unless you were a SEAL and knew something about a particular mission to know that I'm, I've taken a mission from here and moved it over to Africa or whatever, but they'd recognize the mission. So I have freedom to do that. <clears throat> I don't have to worry about... <clears throat> I don't have to worry about telling secrets. I don't have to worry about diming anybody out or anything. So um, also you have everybody wants to tell you that the weapon that you brought up in the book was the wrong caliber <clears throat> for the year or the wrong this or the wrong that. And um, which is why the other fiction books I write are science fiction, time travel books, because I don't have to worry about that because in science fiction, you can make anything up. Exactly. <laughs> which is which could be a whole lot more fun uh, and by the way before we before we continue i want to do this because of your service and i know that there are lots and lots of guys that have come back and have needed assistance when they come back mental assistance there's a lot of a lot of uh, suicide going on i just want to put this number out there if you feel like if you've come back regardless of where you were if you were deployed someplace and you come back there's a number you can call 988 and then just hit one and that will uh, send you to somebody who understands what you're going through and can get you the assistance that you need. So don't delay if you feel the need to do that. I know that Marty there, I'm sure that you've had uh, friends and other people that you've served with that have gone <clears throat> through that, that, transition coming home and it was less than perfect yeah it, it yeah it happens a lot and uh happens 
it happens for different reasons. I think, and we were just talking about this. I'm in a book club with a bunch of seals. And I'd say probably out of, there's like 30 people in the book club, usually about 20 people show up and about two thirds of them are all combat veterans. And we just finished a book about Vietnam written by a Vietnam officer who had lost, he went out on six patrols as a Marine officer in 1968 and lost one person dead on every patrol, you know, as soon as he got into Vietnam and, and he's the author. So we, we had the author, <clears throat> we had some pull. <clears throat> We had the author on the book club talking about the book, which was great. He's a Naval Academy guy. Um, and we got into this, this discussion about the difference between PTSD with different units. SEALs in Vietnam were hunters. They were the, they were the demons. They were the ones that were scaring the hell out of the, the VC and the North, Viet Cong, North Vietnamese. Uh, they had millions of dollars on their heads. They, you know, they were called the men with green faces. They were, they were they had all kinds of nicknames because they went out at night and they hunted the bad guys. And that tends to be the way special ops work. They, they're the ones that are out there hunting everybody else. They put you in a different psychological position as opposed to, you know, like in Vietnam, you're a draftee and you go over and your best friend gets killed. You know, there's, so there's a lot of different ways that PTSD can be generated. In the SEAL teams, and I'd say in most special operations units, one of the biggest things is that you're no longer there in the fight with, with your brothers. Yeah. If you're hurt and you're not in uniform anymore, you feel like, like a quitter or a slacker, like you rang the bell. And, um, and a lot of these guys hate themselves for it because they want to be back in there, you know, toe to toe with the bad guy, shoulder to shoulder with, you know, the men that they were trained with. So it's a different, they call it the brotherhood, the seals are called the brotherhood. So it's, it's a different thing, but it's super powerful because it attacks your self-esteem, your self-worth, your sense of purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, being, being a Navy SEAL or a Green Beret or anything, it's not inoculating anybody from this. Um, and unfortunately, you know, it happens way too much, way too frequently. Well, I'm coming, coming back into what we would, I don't know if we can term it that, but a civil society um, that we would assume that, they're not used to they're used to the regimentation they're used to the brotherhood they're used to being able to do these things and now they're they can't do any of it and it makes a difference so i implore you if you are somebody that that feels like you are all alone because a lot of them are feel that way i'm told i am fortunate fortunately or unfortunately i never served um but if but if you have the need 988 and dial one and that'll get you to somebody who can help you and, and can get you the assistance that you need so that because your life is valuable, you've got lots to contribute in the world, and we need you here, and we need people like you. So, so stay and, um, and get the help you need and, and have a wonderful life. Um, so um, enough of that. Enough of that. I, I, but I did want to mention that you've been on – Many, many television shows and hundreds of radio shows and podcasts. And is that because you are working hard to get the word out about your novels or you just like like the medium or? <laughs> kind of two phases. Um, I got out and about six years later, 9-11 happened. Oh, and yeah. because of my disability, I couldn't go back in. 
And I decided, well, maybe I could do something. So one of the things I was able to get involved in, I actually uh, left the uh, profession I was in, which was I was a portfolio manager for United Bank of Switzerland. I was in my eighth year and I sold my book of business to another another uh, advisor and struck out as a counterterrorism expert. And I worked for the United States government in lots of different places. I worked for the Greek government for the Athens Olympics and same kind of thing, threat profiles. What are the bad guys thinking? What are they going to do? What's their most likely way of planning what they're going to do? Where would they be in their planning cycle right now? You know, and, and what you can do like storyboarding, you can back plan. You can say, okay, if the Olympics is on this date, you know, you start back planning what the bad guys would have to be doing to be prepared to be effective on that date. And you, you basically create a profile of the bad guys and you give intelligence services and law enforcement professionals a lot of insight and in where to look now, even if it's 12, 18 months out. That ended up getting me um, first on Fox and Friends and then on, I was probably on Fox about 300 times and I was on Inside Edition and, and two history channel specials and it was all related to counterterrorism and it, it was a, a, you know an appropriate topic because it was after 9-11 and all that right and uh and then i ended up doing some direct work for the government where i had to get security clearance and i had to stop all my media contact so i had kind of a cold zone there for about seven years so when i wrote the book and had had to start marketing the, the first book which was a uh, the first time travel book um, I was, I was kind of doing a cold start and podcasts were out there, radio interviews were out there. And, uh, and, you know, I couldn't go back to the same people that knew me from before, even though I had all their contact information and say, Hey, I want to talk about a science fiction book because you know, <laughs> you're, you're basically classified, right? I mean, if you're an expert in agriculture, they want you to come and talk about counterterrorism right. and vice versa. <laughs> exactly. So if I, I said, all right, you know, so. But if you want to talk about counterterrorism, we'll have you on it. No, 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 I, I don't want to do that. So, uh, yeah, so most of the radio interviews and the podcast interviews over the last 36 to 40 months, based on the books, based on trying to, you know, all authors have to do this. Oh, yeah. Know, you know, publishers aren't putting a, a massive amount of money into the, into the, they do a little bit up front and then you, basically you're on your own. So all the proceeds from my my nine novels all go to the SEAL Veterans Foundation. Uh, there's a program in there that helps um, helps veterans access uh, PTSD services and traumatic brain injury um, experts. And then my business books are business. I mean, I, I take those proceeds. But um, I started going down that path. And what happened was being on and pitching the books because the first books I decided to do that, I didn't know I was going to write eight more. <laughs> my wife, and you're not said, done yet either. My wife actually said, "Did you realize you were going to write, you know, nine books when you said you were going to give all the proceeds?" So, they, <laughs> so yeah. And I'm here in Virginia Beach, and we're real close to the Civil Veterans Foundations over where I served for 16 out of 20 years. So I just walk over there with a check and shoot the breeze with some of my old friends every so often, and hear about what they're doing. And so it's good. And like I told you, I like to write novels it's fun it's cathartic i'm not doing it to try to make money but the um the business books my third one's coming out this year um i just got the authored copies about four days ago 
uh, it's called Be Different. The business books were all about me trying to get out and do consulting and paid speaking on what we were talking about earlier, being agile, nimble, creative, innovative, Right. certain kinds of dynamics related to crisis leadership, things that I've learned in the SEAL teams, but also that I've learned as a CEO. And um, the second book's Be Visionary. It's about st strategy and, and taking a vision, converting it to a workable strategy. And um, the third book, Be Different, is all about pure creativity and innovation. So, you know, those are fun too, but for all the reasons I told you before, it, it's kind of, I mean, this must be what actors are like, you know, they never see what the, the final film looks like. They never hear the score laid over any of it until they go in and see the final, you know, and then they're like either, wow, that's incredible. Or they're like, oh my God, you know, you don't know, you, you put it out there and everybody I help all, all my friends that are entrepreneurs and stuff that want to write a book. That's the number one thing they say. Nobody is going to think there's any value in me writing something. Who wants to, who cares what I have to say? It's an, it's, it's an ego thing, but I mean, writing a book is a discipline. It's a lot of work and, and marketing and promoting it's a lot of work, but you know, that's what's, that's what's, you know, it's not writer's block from a standpoint of you can't come up with an idea. It's more this, it's almost like, um, uh, fear of public speaking. Yeah. It's, it's something that visceral. It's, it's like, I, I, I don't want to get up behind a podium and tell somebody what my idea is because I don't think they'll, they'll think it's worth anything you know that's that's the uh negative aspect of of what a lot of people do is that oh who am i i don't know i mean i know some stuff but nobody's going to want to listen to my stuff you know that kind of thing um but in your case with the chops that you have in so many different areas of your life that you've done so well but i i gotta ask you because i've been dying to ask you this okay time travel how does it work can we go forward and backwards? Can we just go forward? Um, and and if you go backwards, can you change history by changing one little itty bitty thing? Yes, this the um, the time travel conundrum. <laughs> yes, it is. If you're a Star Trek fan, you know that was always a problem. Um, remember, I said that writing a novel was was better than than uh, writing a business book because you kind of make stuff up. Exactly. And I thought that writing science fiction would even be better than writing about seals because you didn't have to worry about have, having perfection on every little nomenclature and every little speck on every little. Well, I lied. Um, <laughs> because it turns out you have to put a little bit of thought into what would be a feasible time travel method that passed the smell test. And I, I love you know, watching, I was a real big sci-fi kid, and I love watching any movie about time travel. So I thought I was pretty much exposed to all the different conversations about, you know, how you could do it and what the problems would be. Remember the old TV show, the time tunnel. I mean, if you're old enough to him, I was just um, going to reference that. Cause I didn't yeah. think you were old enough to reference that. Yeah. So, you know, I love that, but the problem is what you just mentioned, no matter how, what the methodology is, there's always the, you can't change anything that's preordained or anything you do changes the world, you know, forever. I actually did research and I found a scientist in Oxford, England in the 1930s who came up with the theory of time travel. And then in the 1950s, another Oxford professor took it a step further and it's an actual legitimate theory of time travel. And it was perfect for what I wanted to do. So essentially 
time is is kind of like frames in a movie or pages in a book. So if you want to go back, like if you have, you know, the old type, you know, 16 millimeter film, if you want to go back 20 frames, you didn't change the rest of the movie. Going back there, looking at that frame didn't change anything about that frame because it's done. It's already done. It's been, the universe is imprinted. The matter has been, been modified. Uh, the time space element has been imprinted. It's a done deal. So what they thought was that if you could figure out a way to push human energy, they were using the soul back through these layers, these pages of time, and you had a way of dialing it in so you could get to an accurate point, you could have this person be there and they could operate and everything, but they wouldn't have any effect because what's going to happen has already happened forward and back. And they didn't talk about the mortality issue of it, but I thought, okay, well, all right. So let's say you can do that. How would you do that? So if you could do essentially like 3d printing and take your DNA and, and your, um, your mind as a, um, a download and you could press that back through these pages and you could show up someplace, it would be you, but you'd be mortal. So if, if something happened to you, you're going to die. All right. Now, how do they get back? Well, do they get, is there a time limit? Like, you know, the time tunnel, they always got sucked because they're always trying to remember, they're always trying to save them from whatever they're going to get into and just move into another, you know, all of a sudden they're going to get, get eaten by a dinosaur instead of being at the battle of, you know, New Orleans or something. Exactly. So, so I looked at it and I said, all right, so let's say that they could be pulled back, but they have some kind of a device that if they hit it and they have to have some free space around them so that the, the, um, the withdrawal doesn't get confused with other kinds of DNA and other molecules and everything. So there's got to be a certain amount of space around them when they, when they hit this device and then they get pulled back. So I, once I had that theory, um, what I wanted to write about was warriors and the warrior mindset and the seal ethos in a different way. So the, the time travel books are called the, uh, the time warrior sagas, and it's about way in the future and the government has actually opened up time travel, something that they'd held in secret because the number one cause of death in 2143 is suicide because there's no sense of purpose because everything's given to everybody. It's basically a cradle to grave uh, society where every, everything's handed to you and, and the human mind needs some kind of tension or some kind of something to push against. Uh, medically, the lifespan is all the way up to like 160 years old, but nobody makes it that far because they, they get depressed and they, they punch out. So the government seeing this decided to open this up for time tourism where they could go back. People could go back and um, they could go and see things that were raw and they weren't controlled and all that. And uh, some corporations decided to take it a step further and created the, the Time Warrior guilds. So you had the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and they trained people almost like gladiator type training. People paid for it and they had to uh, pick a time where they were going to go back to ancient Britain, ancient Gaul, ancient you know, Germ uh, Germania, Rome, wherever they were going to go. And it was only before gunpowder. So it was basically your ability with a weapon, close range combat, your, your tactical skill, your physical capabilities. And I got my black belt in Muay Thai when I was 54 and when I, was, when I started writing this thing. So I put all that stuff into it. Of course, it's the future. 
So there's all these hyper-efficient ways to get extremely um, in extreme uh, condition. So they have fitness and conditioning in these in these guild centers. They have the warrior uh, weapons training. They have tactics, and they have this um, upload. They have a port in the back of their um, head, right behind their ear, where they can upload languages, histories, geography. They can't upload skills, but they can upload information. So then you have to go back and at least two people, a two-person pair. And then when you, it's called um, uh, either being pressed as one, one term. I had a couple of terms, but they get pushed back into the, into the past. And then they, uh, they run around and have a good time or die. <laughs> and they, now, have, they have the ability to exit, you know, because they can hit that little device. Oh, so if they if they're about to die and they hit the device, they can exit and then go back uh, without without actually perishing in that in that place. They could, of course, that would really be bad if they left their buddy behind. But I <laughs> <laughs> like, screw yeah. you, I'm out of here. But See the, first, the first book starts, the very first book of the four starts with these guys in a uh, in a Viking shield wall, and they're in a small valley in in uh, Britain, and they're they're fighting and they're on the losing side and the battle starts to fall apart and then everybody breaks it, starts running for it. And these two guys are hiding and, and you don't know that they're from the future yet when you're reading the book and they think they've, they've kind of hidden long enough that they won't be found. And they start walking towards this hill and then somebody sees them. So now there's this big fight at the base of the hill and they basically realize, and they're both wounded. They both, they basically realize they need to get up to the top of the hill where it's clear so they can punch out and get back to the back to the you know their own time and but you don't know that until they get up there and they're they're still killing guys up at the top and then they say you ready yeah i'm ready and then there's this huge bright explosion of light and then all these all these warriors are looking around and wondering what the hell happened and then these guys are now laying on this platform in the year 2143 and that ends up in a book that is put together by those folks saying that there were some angels or something at the top of that hill that, uh, yeah. Yeah, who knows, but by the, by the way, we've been talking with Marty strong, go to his website, Marty strong, nimble.com. And I, I think your books belong in a series. <clears throat> I think Netflix should make a, a, a series about that. Me about too. That. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> So or Disney or something, I don't know who, but but I I would watch it. That sounds really intriguing to me. Yeah, and, and you know the society. There are all these great city states after the second uh, Civil War. So the whole Northeast is the is like they call it the great city. It's what New York, but it covers Connecticut and everything. And then there's L.A., Dallas, and Miami, and everything else in between is kind of like empty land. And uh, and eventually, freedom wants to get out and as the books progress the society is 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 shown to be more manipulative and all the, the small number of people at the top are controlling everything and and so there's a revolution and so um they're called a time for so it's a time for glory a time for truth um a time for honor and the last one's called a time for rebellion and guess who the only people that know how to fight when the rebellion starts uh the people all the, the all the guild warriors all those guys are the only people in modern society that have been trained how to fight and they're on the good side in the revolution so yeah 
So there you are. There you are. There you are. I, I, this has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed talking with you. Would you can I? I know you've done hundreds of interviews. You've been on Fox three hundred times. And is, is if it wasn't that bad, will you come back? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. Um, were you when you were on Fox? Were you the uh, the the expert? the and the counterterrorism expert that they would talk to or were you one of the either the conservative or the liberal guys no no it was never about politics i was one of the uh either special operations or counterterrorism always in the brady bunch box set or you know just two but yeah and i'd go i'd go to the new york studios and dc studios a lot and sit there and um yeah i mean it depends on the format it depends on who's asking the questions a lot of it had to do with the news they yeah. limo me they limo me in there to go talk about abu sayef in, in the philippines and then all of a sudden i'd get there and while i was in the limo getting there there was a bomb that went off in in turkey and then they all of a sudden can you talk about you know this just happened they'd hand me a bunch of piece you know paper and i'm about to read it and i've been preparing for one and now i gotta so i know everything about abu sayef and now i don't know anything <laughs> about the turkish you know well, yeah. all I got to say is I'm sorry in this world there is so much work for an anti-terrorism expert. Yeah, me too. But uh, hopefully maybe we'll get through that one day. Yeah. So anything, uh, Marty, that you'd like to add before we go? I don't think so. I, I uh, appreciate your uh, your call out for the uh, suicide prevention, and, and that, that's a great, great service, a great public uh, message. and. Uh, I'm sure you could probably help some people just by putting that number up. I hope so. It is, I, I ran into it not too long ago, and I'm just so glad that the, that it's there for people. The, that number, again, if you missed it, is 988. If you're a veteran, uh, punch one after that, and they'll get you the help that you need. And thank you for your service. Thank you for donating the funds from your books to the, uh, to the military and to help other guys get through it because everybody that is still here is way too valuable and we don't want to lose anybody. I agree. So Marty strong has been our guest. Go to his website, which is Marty strong, be He's got business books. He's got, um, um, fantasy books. He's, he's got a lot going on and, and, Again, he was in the military for 20 years, and I thank him for his service, as I know everybody in our audience does. So, Marty, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kevin. And if you're right there, I'll be right back. I hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to one another because each other's all we got.